Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Jason Gay is the author of Little Victories, a memoir, and he is the Wall Street Journal's sports columnist and humor columnist for its review section. P.S. Jason is like my all-time favorite columnist in a newspaper pretty much ever, and I read almost all of his columns and often read them out loud to my husband because they're really that good, and his book was also fantastic. Okay, back to his bio. The author of the 2015 bestseller, Little Victories, Jason has written for additional publications, including Vogue, GQ, Rolling Stone, and Outside. In 2016, he was named Sports Columnist of the Year by Society of Professional Journalists and was a finalist for the Thurber Prize of American Humor. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am so grateful for the invitation and thrilled to get your invitation a few weeks ago and and and, and honored to be here. Oh, well, I have to say you are a personal favorite of my husband's and mine because he is like a sports nut and former okay. professional tennis guy and blah, 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 sports all the time. In fact, these used to be books on top of me as I showed you in my office. They used to be football helmets, <laughs> which I also made him bring somewhere else. So anyway, we read your column all the time and I often read it out loud to him. So that's like one of our rituals. So he was like so excited. I was talking to you today. Wow. I'm deeply honored. Where are the football helmets? Are they, did you give them away or are they in a basement somewhere? We didn't know. No, 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 no. I did not give them. They're downstairs. They're like in his little nook of, you know, football watching heaven. (laughs) Yeah. It's, 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 I think you've upgraded a little bit from the helmets. It looks pretty good to me, but I'm, I'm, I'm very flattered by the joint reading that is, I hear that once in a while. And honestly, that's the best thing I can possibly hear. I'm very flattered. We actually, not now this is just like sounding creepy to me. Like two years ago or so, I was reading Little Victories and I downloaded the audio of it also so that he could listen to it. And so we listened to you on this cross, not cross country, but we were driving from Arizona to LA. Okay. So we put you on, you know, to listen to you for a while. And then after all, he's like, I don't know. I kind of like you reading him better. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't have a great voice for radio. I don't have that kind of like stentorian gravel that you want, right? For real uh, gravitas in audio books. But, you know, I, I tried my hardest. <laughs> I don't blame him if he, if he prefers your voice to mine. Just well, I hope he would prefer me to you. I mean, <laughs> yes. I am married no, to the guy, so yes. you know, nothing personal. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I guess I'm I'm in trouble if he starts really strongly preferring other <laughs> audiobooks, or you know, <laughs> it's a warning sign for me. Anyway, it's interesting. So my 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 column at the journal more recently, they've started putting an audio component on it where it's it's a computerized voice. It's not a human voice. It's a it, but it sounds quite humanish, and it's at the top of the column, and I, it's take some getting used to. Like, I want to do it myself. I'd love to read it myself, but maybe people would prefer the computer. I don't know. But like, it's interesting because they tell me that there's a type of reader who is very interested in getting their news information that way. And and listen, I'm in favor of any application that can make people pick up a newspaper in any format. So I support it. 
I would vote for your voice over computer voice. And yeah, I'm sure my husband yeah. would agree. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, I actually read a newspaper like in my hand, a hard copy. I think I'm uh, one of the last people, but cool. maybe you do too. You write for a newspaper. Old, How do you cool. read it? I, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that. Well, I shouldn't say embarrassed to say, but I, I, I am much more of a digital reader than I certainly was five, six years ago. But I do believe very strongly in the print product and the kind of news consumer that reads the print product, because I think that, and I think studies bear this out that I don't want to say you're a more informed consumer, but you're getting, you're reading things that you wouldn't necessarily read digitally because what a digital product does is it starts to learn you, right? It's to be, it starts to figure out what you like to read and then starts to like, you know, the same way that your Spotify feed does or anything else does your Instagram feed, it figures out things that you are interested in your preferences and Whereas when you read a print product, it's everyone's getting the same thing, right? And so it's not specific to you and your eye might be drawn to stories that you wouldn't otherwise be handed by an algorithm. So that's the formative newspaper reading experience in my childhood, which was, you know, opening up the paper to read the thing that I wanted to read. And then my eye would travel to something else and I'd read that and then read that. And pretty soon you realize you read like three or four stories that you wouldn't otherwise be reading. So I think that's a really valuable thing. And I, I would hate to see a, a moment where there wasn't that option for readers. I agree. I also feel like you can read so much more. I mean, I know they say that digital reading saves time, but I can go through like a whole paper in the time, you know, you can skim as you flip the pages and get information that would take so many click-throughs. Yes. I don't know. I think it's fat. I think it actually saves time, but you know. Yeah, either, there's just something also about the the art of reading print, right? Like you're a New Yorker, I believe. And and so like you're somebody who knows that how to read a broadsheet newspaper when you have a person on your right and your person on your left and you fold it carefully. And I am not good at that. Oh, you're not good at I'm, that. No, okay. I'm not good at that. No. Well, there's still Sorry. time, you know? I know. I've tried. I've tried. I'm more like spread it out on my kitchen island. And sometimes I end up with four days at once. And then I just like okay. go through the whole stack. I'm the same way. I have young children in my house, which means oftentimes though, when I spread out newspaper on the house, pretty soon someone's doing finger painting on top of it. And then I can't read it. Yes. So yes. That is a hazard. That is an occupational hazard. <laughs> <laughs> but I try, sometimes I even read them at night, you know, when nobody, it's like my, how I relax type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like I should talk to you about the Super Bowl. Not yeah, that I actually really good. like football that much, but it is the day after the Super Bowl. And I read your column this morning about, you know, Tom Brady, who you keep writing about a lot. I think, you know, the absurdity of I can't that. avoid him. I can't shake him. Zippy. He's in I know. life. <laughs> I know. I feel like you have like a, a thing with him. Like you just like, can't believe it. Is it just that, you know, a man about your age is actually like doing this thing or what is it? Absolutely. Is it like a personal Absolutely. thing or yeah, just what? Of course. Like, you know, he's, he's mocking me, you know, this is, <laughs> you know oh, look bad. you know, he's 43 years old. He should have been falling asleep at halftime of the Super Bowl yesterday, not playing in it, not winning the Super Bowl MVP. And yet he's out there, you know, competing still at the pinnacle of the sport. You know, that Super Bowl yesterday, like that was the seventh ring. The next closest person has five. He's in a class all to himself. And the fact that he is at 43 and shows no signs of stopping is making no indication that this is going to be it for him. Said the other day before the game that he's open to the idea of going past age 45. That's real rare air. There is an NFL player who played until age 48, George Blanda, but he was a kicker for the latter half of his career. And so that Tom Brady 
is doing this at such a critical position at a vulnerable position, right? You know, because everyone's trying to get the quarterback. It's just remarkable. So yeah, I mean, listen, I have Brady fatigue, like I think a lot of people do at this point, but I also have a real sense of wonderment for what he's accomplished because we've literally not seen it in the history of this sport. By the way, I think the way you feel about Tom Brady this year is how the rest of us women might have felt about JLo at the halftime show <laughs> last year. <laughs> no, serious. It's like, really? That you're, that's what we can, this is like, this is on the table as something like a, that we can be doing. an impossible standard. Yes. That. Setting an impossible standard okay. That, okay. that just makes the rest of us feel bad. Okay. Yeah. Well, it doesn't take much to be an impossible standard for me. You know, I think <laughs> someone who can just like, you know, walk 10,000 steps a day is already like in rare air to me. I'm struggling with the base minimums, but no, he, he I can see that for sure. 10,000 is a lot of steps. I guess That's so is. many steps. I, I mean, who I made that rule? I mean, I don't know. The, 10, <laughs> like, it was the big 10,000 society. Yeah, exactly. More shaming for the those of us who like maybe get two blocks to the park with the dog and that's about it. <laughs> Not that that would be me. Of course, I'm getting 20,000 steps a day. All those coffees, all those coffee trips. Is it going to be one of those things like, you know, with like how they always keep changing the health standards, you know, with like, you can eat this, you can't eat that. You can eat. So you're going to come back, you know, if you're, actually you only need 14 steps. It's 10,000. We were wrong all this time. You just had 14 steps. That's it. That's all it takes. Maybe they'll do that to be. Maybe it's like how doctors say do this twice a day because they know you're only going to do it once a day. So the recommendation is 10,000 because they know there's no chance. But if it's 10,000, then maybe people will get to 2,000. I am sure there is something to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Aspirational guidelines. To make this more of a sad conversation, your essay about your friend Tom Perota, I hope I pronounced that right, was so sad and beautiful. And then I went and like read his essay and everything too. And maybe you could just talk for a second about your relationship with him and and even how COVID gave him those extra moments and everything. Yeah. No, thank you for asking about him. I love talking about my friend Tom and, and, and yeah, he, he shares a name with a very distinguished novelist, Tom Parada, but this was a different one. And he wrote for the Wall Street Journal for about 10 years. And I knew him the whole time. And he was our tennis writer. He was the guy we sent to Wimbledon and French Open and had this really sort of wonderful job. And it was an incredible writer, but then was stricken with brain cancer about four years ago and battled it very, very hard. He outlived all the sort of predictions of how long he would go. And we lost him, I guess, in early December or no, I'm sorry, early January. And before he died in, in the fall, the journal published this essay by Tom that talked about really the last 10 months or so of the pandemic and how amid what had been obviously an incredibly disruptive and challenging situation for so many people, he found this incredible silver lining of family and the fact that family had to be home with him. This was a part of his life that he hadn't really experienced professionally because he was always traveling around. He was always on a plane somewhere and he had missed things. And here was this time in his life when, you know, he knew he didn't have a lot of time left and he was getting every maximal moment with his children, his wife, his close circle. And it was just a very fascinating perspective on this. And, you know, this period of time has been so rich with, you know, 
lessons of perspective and context. And I'll be the first to say, boy, I feel like the luckiest person around. The fact that my family has been healthy, the fact that I've been able to work through this. And I know many people are facing far greater and severe challenges than I could ever imagine. But I felt that what Tom wrote was beautiful. And I think that I know from talking to him, it was something he really wanted to say. And and I feel like, you know, it, you know, those of us, and you're probably ones that'd be like, at some point in life, you encounter people who know they don't have a lot of time left. And there's this version of it, the movie version of like great clarity that people like, you know, they know what they want to do and they're going to do this last thing. And it's just like, you know, this trajectory. And it's not like that. You know, he was angry. He was mad about things. He just felt he was getting a raw deal. He died at 44. That is young. But he also really felt things and he knew that what he was getting in these last months, he really needed it. And he felt was going to be incredibly valuable to his children too, as they got older and they knew that they had had this time with him. So, you know, he was a magical guy. We miss him a great deal. And he was a huge contributor to the newspaper, but I was really struck by the readers who responded, other writers, people in the tennis community, athletes, players, who really liked the guy and were moved by him. And I don't know, I just thought, you know, we're all still sort of processing a little bit, even though we had time to prepare for this outcome. You know, my thoughts are primarily with his wife and children, of course, but I think that people have done right by him. You know, I think that he will be remembered as, as a, a true gent and a true wonderful writer. Do you feel like losing him or having to watch this and sort of the anger at the life not lived, does it make you feel like, different approaching your day-to-day life? I mean, I know oh, that's absolutely. I mean, how, yeah, sure. How can you not? Like I had an experience with Tom where, so he was the person, of course, we sent to these big tournaments and he was the top dog. And as he started to have health issues, it was harder for him to do every part of it. He was the person who could do everything. And then, you know, as, as time went on, you know, he needed some supplementation. And so I went with him to Wimbledon one year and was writing some stuff on deadline about like Federer and, and, and Djokovic. And he was sitting with me and he's like, you know, I'm just, I just wish I could still do that. And by by that, I meant like literally just physically, mechanically do it really quickly on deadline or write like that. That was something that was harder for him. He needed a little bit more runway to get stuff going. And uh, yeah, I mean, you don't spend any time in the orbit of somebody who is facing something like that and not have it change you and not have it give you a major necessary dose of perspective and all those things I need all the time. I think all of us need, but again, you know, the best part of it was the fact that he was able to have that time with family and and, and friends toward the end. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. And it is always a good reminder, even though, I mean, they say like, oh, it's a gift when you realize, well, it's not a gift. It's still terrible and still would prefer it not to ever happen. But I guess if there's anything. Of course, but there is something, you know, and, and since this is about writing, you know, there is something magical about the fact that people live on through their writing. You know, you can go, you know, if you've not read any of his work, it's not terribly hard to find, type in his name, Tom Parada, Wall Street Journal, and you'll find just avalanches of great stuff that he did over the years. And I think that that will be a real comfort to his family, his children, but also to the many people who knew him and loved him. And 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 there is something wonderful about the fact that that outlives us all. Maybe you should compile his essays into a book and write a foreword for him. We are underway. We, okay. We are underway with all these kinds of things. Okay. And I have no new ideas. We want his kids it's to happen. You know, his children, yeah. you know, yeah. sadly are, are quite young still. And, you know, they're probably not reading the Wall Street Journal, but we want them to have that. You know, because it is a remarkable legacy of work. 
So speaking more about writing, how did you end up as the sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal? How did that happen? They threw a bunch of applications up there <laughs> and mine was the... I don't, you know, I'll tell you what like when, happened. When, when did you I'll start? You when what, did you... I'll, go back. I'll go back in happened. time. I'll tell you what happened. So I was, you know, I had kicked around newspapers and magazines for quite a number of years. And I had most recently at that time been working at GQ magazine, which was a magazine I had been at for quite a while. And I got a call from a friend of mine who the journal had called first and said, Hey, the Wall Street Journal is looking for a sports writer. Would you ever do this? And I was like, what the journal? What? Like I was not a Wall Street Journal reader. That'll not shock anyone who reads me, but I don't really fit the profile of someone who's financially literate or newspaper literate in, in any sort of you know traditional sense. But it was still a cool sounding job. So I went in there and I talked to them and we did this thing where it was basically a tryout. So you write columns based on things that were happening, but they don't go in the newspaper. They just want to see if you can put the verbs after the nouns and spell things correctly. And you can write on a deadline, that kind of stuff, things that were important to them. So I did this kind of like audition over a few weeks and then they said, okay, well, we'll try this part-time. And then about 10 years ago, and then it became full-time a little while after that. And I have to say, it's the best job I've ever had by a landslide. And I've had some nice jobs and great bosses and great publications to work for, but there's nothing like working for a paper or any kind of publication where the just audience is massive. So the journal goes out to what, 3 million plus a day. And whether they like you or they don't like you, you're going to hear from them. You're going to hear from readers. And I just never had had that kind of feedback and relationship with readers before. And it's something I still treasure, the fact that you're in people's lives. And there's something about, you know, you describe just your experience and like, you know, sharing with your husband or, you know, reading in print. You know, if you're around enough, you know, and my column gets in the paper a few times a week, you start to become a character in readers' lives, for better or for worse. Sometimes not everyone likes you. But I just consider that an incredible honor and privilege to be able to have that role. And so that's my story. You know, everyone comes to the paper a little differently, but I didn't didn't really fit the sort of standard profile of somebody who arrives at the journal. Most of the people are much smarter than I am. <laughs> much. Well, yours is by far my favorite column. And I think part of the reason why is that you put so much of yourself in everything yeah. and not a lot of the other columns in the journal tend to do that. I mean, there's fantastic other things as well, but it's all about you. I mean, it's you, it's what's like on your mind that week and like stuff with your kid. And yet you have like this funny way of like spinning everything or, you know, putting the Olympics in your mom's living room. Like, well, I would never have thought to write that essay. Like, that's just funny. It's just, it's just like a different way of seeing the world. And yet you get to know you as well. So it's like, it's very cool. It's like going to a stand-up show or something. Ah, like, yes. Yeah, so, well, I am a failed comedian and I am just working it out in the Wall Street Journal. I, listen, everything you say <laughs> is so kind and I appreciate it a great deal. I, I mean, I'm only doing what I know how to do. You know, I'm not somebody who is going to be able to write some sort of constantly serious, stern proclamation about the world a couple of times a week in the newspaper. I try to keep it light because that's just who I am. And the good piece of advice, one of the very many good pieces of advice I got very early on is like, you know, sort of be true to yourself. And that will be sort of your North Star. If you are true to yourself, you'll never kind of get tangled because you're taking a take because you think that's what people want to hear or you're being something because you think that's what's going to get the most clicks. You just, you know, for better and for worse, you are yourself. And as far as like putting my own self into columns and things like that, you know, that was a challenge, first of all, because you know, there's 
there's typically institutional resistance to that kind of thing wherever you work. That's not so much as a journal thing. And I was very lucky to have publishers, editors who were willing to let me try that, experiment with it, fail with it quite often. Still, I think that's an important part of being a columnist is failing every once in a while or somewhat on the regular. But it allows you, you know, you you write the bad ones so you can write the good ones. And I think that, again, sort of the, you know, ultimately what you're hoping for is a relationship with the readers to sort of keep you on track. And every once in a while, I hear from people, I hear really great, nice things from people. And then I hear every once in a while from people who are like, you got that one wrong or enough is enough with that. And like that relationship and that kind of feedback is essential to what I'm doing. And this is a long-winded way of saying that, like, I, this is the only skill I have, Zippy. And if this doesn't work out, you know, I'm going to be selling hand puppets somewhere. I just, like, I don't, this is all I have. Okay. Well, it seems to be going well so far. So, you know, <laughs> this is it, Zippy. This is all I have is my thrice weekly column in the Wall Street Journal. No, but I, I'm such I a wish, failure in life. Yeah. Feel sorry for me. <laughs> but here, you talk to writers all the time. And I think that there's a kind of writer who said, who sort of says, has like kind of a master plan or a worldview about the way that they want to do things and the way they sort of have a prescription for writing. You know, like this is how I, it should be done. And this is how I do it. And I don't feel that way at all. I feel like we're all kind of, you know, figuring it out as we go along and while in newspapers, there are some things that are hard and fast, like, you know, a need to be, you know, rigorous with fairness, be truthful, to have integrity. Those are unbreakable rules. I think the rest of it is sort of open for discussion in terms of style and approach. And I think that in terms of there being rules for the way to write, you know, I would guarantee you that most of the writers that all of us really love in some way or other kind of were rule breakers and did it a little differently and changed norms and were confrontational and, 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 and sort of broke away from the pack. None of which is to say I'm doing any of that on a regular basis, but I feel like, I feel like writers have more liberty to experiment and do things differently. And I wouldn't certainly be prescriptive to people and say like, this is a, there's only one way to do this. Cause there's not, there's a great many writers, sports writers that I love, 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 love who, you know, their the humor is not their thing. They don't, you know, they're not trying to be funny and they probably look at me and think I'm some sort of goofball, but I think there's room for all of it. You know, sports is such a topic that has such a wide range of fans, you know, people who are utterly casual, who are watching the Super Bowl as their first football game of the season or the decade sometimes. And then there are people who are following every minute of every game and are obsessed and want a different kind of product. And I think there's room for all of it. Well, I mean, I don't think any writer really feels confident ever. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and I think even the most accomplished, brilliant literary icons like are like, oh, I hope my next book works. Right. So <laughs> I'm no, sure seriously, you're right. like <laughs> I'm sure you're right. But I think that there is a kind of person who is very capable of faking it, like at least in just in terms of like their confidence and to project a kind of like surety that I just don't have. But I think you're right that ultimately you drilled down and we're all kind of squishy in the middle. I, I, I'm sure that's true. And your book, Little Victories, was fantastic, but it was a while ago now. So are you thinking of writing another one or what? We are on the verge of like some excitement here, Zibby. You know, there is a project in the works that I'm super excited about. I've spent quite a while 
uh, working on. I can't like launch into details yet, but I'm really excited to get it out into this planet. Yeah, because it has been a while. I love doing little victories. I love the fact that I hear from people all the time still about, you know, reading it. But yeah, it's been a minute and I'm really excited about what's coming. Well, please send me an early copy of whatever it turns out to be. I'm just going to yep. read it into the phone, like, you know, like just audio. Oh, perfect. Book, right? How's right. that sound? Yeah. yeah. Then <laughs> like, I can just read it back to you. Like hard pass. Can I have the computer voice, please? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you just gave so much advice, but just one last piece of advice for people listening. Do you have one last parting piece of advice that everyone out there who's an aspiring author should know or aspiring writers or columnists? Oh, gosh. I think, and this is all just my experience. But I think one of the great superpowers of writing is humility. And by that, I mean the ability to recognize that you don't have the answers always, that you get it wrong sometimes, and you can sort of think out loud. I think that we are in a moment because of the way social media works and what it prioritizes and what sort of gets attention, that being incredibly declarative to the point of like coarseness and rudeness and awfulness, that's what clicks with people. You know, X is X, Y is Y, Z is Z, A is A. And life isn't like that. There are no clear-cut answers or there are clear-cut truths, but there aren't necessarily clear-cut answers to the big questions. And I think that like, I think it's okay for people who are even in the opinion business to be sorting it out, to be, I don't know the answers to this question. And I have a little bit of, I see this and I see that. And I I just, it doesn't necessarily track with like social media and the way that people, you know, react to information now, but I, I think it's human and I think it's real. And I think there's a whole subcurrent of readers who appreciate that kind of candor. So I think the, you know, and, and that's a piece of advice that works, I think, for someone who's writing opinion columns about sports or something, someone's writing opinion columns about stuff that's far more serious than sports. It applies to people who are writing fiction and nonfiction that, you know, you can work it out, show your work, right? You know, as they say in math, show the work. And I I think that that's, that's certainly been my experience because, you know, the more you do it, and this is an old cliche, but, you know, the longer you go, the more you realize you don't know, but that can be a real asset. And to bring it all back to like a Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, right? You know, here he is. He's standing on that stage Sunday night. It would be 19 years since the first one. And you look at somebody who is still approaching his sport with this curiosity about it. Like, what's it going to be like next year? I still like this. I'm still getting something. I haven't done it all. I think that kind of thing is a real vital thing in, in no matter what you do. So that's sort of vague advice, but, but I'm sticking to it to be, it works. I'll take it. (laughs) Well, Jason, thank you. And one of these days, my husband is also quite funny. I have to say, and loves sports. And I think we should all go get a drink or something at some point. So can I interview you for one quick second? I appreciate that. But what's the tennis here? What's the, what's the tennis background? He taught professional tennis. He played like junior tennis in Florida, went to voluntary, blah, blah, blah. And then taught for like 10 to 12 years. And now he's a movie producer. Yeah. Is he still out there hacking away or is he put the right? He plays for fun. He plays for fun. Yeah. Not for money anymore. Not for money. No. But he's like my on staff pro. (laughs) 
It's good to have an on-staff pro. How is it second serve these days? We don't actually, you know, we don't actually do serves. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. Yeah, that's just, fine. we just hit. But his was, was pretty good. You know, my father taught high school or coached high school tennis in Cambridge, Massachusetts for 40 years. Oh my gosh. And he was an obsessive like city tennis player. He liked the sort of like crazy chain link tennis where like, you know, the cracks in the court and the nets were crooked and like, you know, like that was his game. He liked the city game. And his question to ask people was, was how was your second serve? And I think it was mm-hmm. Harry Hoffman, the great Harry Hoffman said, you're only as good as your second serve. So I always thought that was like the knowing tennis question to ask. Was, my second serve second? is horrific. So that doesn't speak well about my tennis, but anyway. my second serve looks like someone lightly tapping a butterfly into a butterfly net. Like it's so oh, weak. Yes. You yes. embarrassed. <laughs> not You'd be embarrassed, not just for me, but for the entire sport of tennis. <laughs> Oh, awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for spending the time with me. What a great time. Say hi to your husband for me. Say hi to the family. I really appreciate it. And let's do this again sometime. I would love it. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Enjoy the coffee. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 